you want to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, let me uh, let remind you or let you know, um, we do have uh, two special choirs singing, I believe, the next two uh, Sundays. So children next week, um, it's always entertaining if nothing else, and then the adult uh, and teen choir for the following week on the 18th. And if you weren't here in, uh, uh, during Sunday school, I announced that the uh, Nechaparenkos, close, uh, will be here on the 18th as well. So you'll want to hear uh, from them. So, all right, turn to Colossians 1. We're in verses 9 through 14 today. This is a prayer um, of the Apostle Paul, and uh, we are going to I'll learn from it today. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. <coughs> Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. <coughs> Excuse me. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to Colossians 1 to learn more about Christ this Advent. Lord, teach us by your Holy <coughs> Teach us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to make every effort to be filled with the knowledge of his will and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. These are words about faithfulness and fruitfulness, thanks and joy, most of all about Jesus. We need to know these truths. especially during the season of Advent, a season of waiting. So give us a desire to learn from you this morning and speak through the words of the Apostle Paul. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, our King. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. So I have been fighting a cough this week, and obviously it decided to show up again this morning. So please bear with me. I came across two articles this week that seemed diametrically opposed to one another. But they were both true. One was about eight years ago. A researcher asked 100 American college students and 100 Japanese college students to take a piece of paper. 
On one side, they wrote down the decisions in life that they want to make for themselves. The other side of the paper was the decisions in life that they want other people to make for them. So one side, decisions that I want to make. The other side, decisions I want other people to make for me. The Americans filled up the side for the decisions they want to make for themselves. Where to live, what job to take. The other side was almost completely blank. The only decision they wanted to hand off to others was when I die. The Japanese students, however, filled up the back side of the sheet with things they wanted others to decide for them. What they wore, what time they woke up, what they did at their job. The American students desired choice four times as much and in four times as many domains as the Japanese students. And based on this experiment, the New York Times columnist David Brooks made a claim in a 2016 uh, article that America is experiencing, experiencing a choice explosion. He says Americans now have more choices over more things than any other culture in history. We can choose between a broader array of foods, media sources, lifestyles, and identities. In some ways, this is a positive trend, but he cautions it's becoming incredibly important to learn to decide well. And apparently, learning to decide well is more difficult than one might think. <clears throat> that brings me to the second article that I read, writing for CNBC two years ago. Dr. Tess Brigham, a licensed psychotherapist, she specializes and she writes about treating those in the millennial generation so you know who you are. And she says, I, I didn't decide to focus on that group. They just came flocking to my practice. She said, 90% of my patients are millennials and the rest are parents of millennials. And over the last five years, she's noticed the dominant theme when they come to her seeking help. They say, I have too many choices and I can't decide what to do. What if I make the wrong choice? Now, psychologist Barry Schwartz has a theory as to why this is the case and has written a book called The Paradox of Choice. And he argues that people are more likely to regret their choices if they have too many choices uh, or too many options from which to choose. They're worried that they might make a poor choice or they might make a good choice but feel bad about it or refuse to choose at all, which is itself a choice. His argument is that more choices means being less satisfied, less happy, and less content. So if you take these two articles and bring them together, it appears that we have a society where everyone wants to make all their own choices, but are so overwhelmed by all the options, they're unable to make any decision at all. I want to make all my own decisions, but I can't make a decision. Obviously, that leaves us in a tough spot. So what do Christians do? After all, we're confronted with all the same choices as everyone else. 
Dr. Brigham uh, counsels her clients to practice self-awareness, not sure what that means, to identify their options and zero in on the things they can control. She wants them to know that it's easier to embrace uncertainty if they can offer themselves grace and acceptance. Well, that's starting to sound a little better. But because we're Christians, shouldn't there be more than learning how to decide well? The Apostle Paul would say, absolutely, a lot more. In today's passage, Paul says, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Well, that just ramped up the pressure, because now my choices not only have to be good for me, they also have to please God. And the choice explosion just got harder. So what are we to do? Well, first of all, we have to realize Paul's not wrong. Paul's not wrong. You see, it's Advent. <clears throat> Advent is the season of waiting. And at Advent now, for centuries, the church has always taken this few weeks before Christmas to look at who Jesus is. And so these, this year, these weeks before Christmas, we're looking at what Colossians 1 teaches us about Jesus. And here Paul tells us that Jesus is a king. You may have noticed that king theme through all of our music uh, this morning. That was not a uh, coincidence. Uh, Tom plans the music so it goes with the sermon. And so notice that uh, when you're listening. Um, but before we, we look closer at Jesus, I want you to notice in verses 12 and 13, it says a Christian is someone who's been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. From the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. The Bible divides the world into two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Jesus. Now this imagery actually comes from the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus, after all, was an actual literal transfer of God's people from one kingdom, Egypt, to uh, another kingdom, Israel. And so what was literal in Exodus becomes a paradigm uh, for thinking about our own relationship with God. Spiritual speaking, we're all in a kingdom. There is no neutral territory. There's no spiritual Switzerland. We're either aligned with God or against God. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said to love one is to hate the other. Every time you and I decide to indulge our sinful choices... We set ourselves against God. Our allegiances are not to the Lord. Instead, spiritually speaking, we're choosing the kingdom of darkness. And yet here in Colossians, the Apostle Paul doesn't present the solution as just another choice. He's not saying this is a decision to stop serving the kingdom of darkness and to serve God instead. That's actually the way most people treat sin. Maybe you've even thought that way yourself. I can do this on my own. I can fix the problem. I just have to make a decision to say no uh, to this sin and then choose to follow God. Paul recognizes that we can't do that on our own. We need to be delivered. The transfer from one kingdom to another comes from Jesus. So what do we do? Well, first we're going to look at what Paul tells us to do, and then we're going to look at how Jesus makes it doable. So turn with me again to our text, Colossians 1, uh, 9 through 14. I have a number of points today. 
we're going to start by recognizing that we walk to please the king. If you have the outline, those are the first blanks. Verses 9 and 10, we walk to please the king. Walk worthy seems to be an appropriate slogan for the Christian life. To ask yourself, is my life worthy of the king? And how do I know? Well, we're not left to our own speculation, thanks to these verses, which say, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So back to the question, is my life worthy of the Lord? That's a big question. It's sort of a, a gulp um, because self, every self-affirming tendency in me wants to mute that question. But it unavoidably forces itself back to my attention because it keeps showing up again and again throughout the New Testament. As I read through the New Testament, I keep reading this same stuff over and over and over again, particularly from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 4.1 I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And finally, not Paul, but John, Revelation 3, 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So the clear teaching of the New Testament, and that's only five verses out of what could have been uh, 20, is that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. But you have to understand this. First, or, uh, uh, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, is a prayer. Paul is praying for the Colossians to walk worthy. And it's useful for us to hear these prayers because what Paul prays for at the beginning of this letter is what he talks about for the rest of the letter. Maybe you've had this kind of experience. You know, thank for those of you who are adults. Um, for those of you who are teens, this is probably part of your future. Um, <clears throat> but when you were in college and you went home for Thanksgiving break, and most of us just had a big Thanksgiving and you're sitting down for dinner, and your mom says, let's pray. Lord, thanks for bringing Mary back for Thanksgiving break. I hope we have a wonderful time. I hope she studies really hard, does well in school, gets a great job, and makes lots of money. Amen. Well, from that prayer, you know there's going to be some conversations on those topics. Well, this is true of Paul as well. What he prays for is what he's going to teach. 
And that is just like our prayers here at Potomac Hills. The prayers themselves are a form of teaching. And that's certainly the case here in Colossians 1. So what follows next are four phrases that sort of flesh this out. You might call them four tests for living in a manner pleasing to the king. And the first one is we please the king by bearing fruit. We please the king by bearing fruit. Verse 10, starting in the middle, he says, bearing fruit in every good work. So that's the first test. Are my works bearing godly fruit? When it comes to knowing and following God's will, we tend to overthink the who and the where and the how rather than the what of God's will. Following God's will is a call to bear fruit, kingdom fruit, in every good work, in every good work to which we are called. As John Piper said, it is a spiritual thing to discern which good works of the 10,000 possible are among the every good work that belong to my life. It would be crushing to think that God has called me to carry the weight of every single need that we see, especially in a digital age. It would be overwhelming. We may not be called to do every good work. We are called to fruitfulness in all of our good works. And so we have to discern for ourselves what those good works are, what those good works should be, and get busy doing them with an aim to please the king. In other words, if our lives are not bearing fruit in every good work for the king, then we probably need to repent of how our lives have veered away from his word and his will and pray for the Holy Spirit to redirect us. That's the first thing. Second, we please the king by knowing God. We please the king by knowing God. Again, verse 10 at the end says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that's the second test. Am I increasing in the knowledge of God? Our king is so great and so good and so committed to revealing himself to us through his word that we have to keep ourselves in his word. And that's especially true when it comes to knowing his son, the king, the Lord Jesus. We should want to know more about him, more about his life and his words and his works. Nothing runs more contrary to the will of the king than to ignore him. Perhaps because we've grown lazier, we've settled for some uh, phantom of a king made in our own image, a king who has the same preferences and attitudes that we have. Whenever someone mentions to me, well, my God would do this, I'm like, okay, we're, we're already off the reservation. Because as soon as you say, well, my God, you are now making God in your image to match your preferences and your wants and desires, not how God has revealed to us in his word. And it's actually easy to do that. It's easy to forget that we don't get to define God. We don't get to define truth. God has already defined and described himself uh, as he's revealed himself in his word. And as for the truth, it's easy to forget that Jesus is the truth. He said his word is truth, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So to try to redefine God or redefine God's truth is nothing less than idolatry. To render 
God, the great I am, into our own image with our wants and preferences is nothing less than actually forgetting God altogether. That's what we read in Psalm 50. And if that has the wrong reference there, it should be verses 21 and 22. It says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. This is God speaking. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The living God is so unlike us that we must have a special revelation, the Holy Scriptures, a sense of our own humility and illumination from the Holy Spirit in order to see his beauty and his glory and his truth in the pages of Scripture. But if we aren't increasing in our knowledge of the mysterious works of God, then now he's calling us to repent and to pray that he will again reveal himself to us in his word as he truly is and not as we want him to be. So that's the second thing, increasing in the knowledge of God. Third, we please the king by being resilient. R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T. So you don't have to look it up. Look at verse 11. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. That's the third test. Is my life resilient? Paul's praying for them to be strengthened with power for endurance and patience. And I'm rolling all those four things up together. Strength, power, endurance, and patience under this framework of resilience. Now, I looked up resilience. The Mayo Clinic defines resilience as the ability to adapt to difficult situations. When stress, adversity, or trauma strike, you still experience anger, grief, and pain, but you're able to keep functioning, both physically and psychologically. So that's their definition of resilience. So what does that look like? Well, first of all, children of the king shouldn't be easily enraged online. We don't jump to quick conclusions. We read with charity, we listen with care, and we do it with an inner strength manifested as outward patience. Again, to quote John Piper, he said, Patience is the evidence of an inner strength. Impatient people are weak. that me making all that noise? I'm sorry. He says that patience is the evidence of an inner strength. Impatient people are weak. He draws that connection from this text. The king is willing that our inner strength will be shown by our outward patience. Patient people are strong in order to honor the king. Of course, God-given patience demands strength on the inside, not easy circumstances on the outside. To endure patiently means not being caught by surprise when life hurts. Our king is sovereign, but that sovereignty over us does not exempt us from pain. The king's call for endurance is behind uh, Pastor Matt Chandler's description of his own battle with brain cancer. Matt Chandler describes his battle with brain cancer. And 
using this text, he says, people get angry when you say God was part of my cancer because they were taught that God's purpose is to make much of us, to make much of me, to make much of you, that there's no hurt or struggle for us. But the Bible says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Living worthy of the king calls for endurance. Okay? I'm getting feedback and I don't have my hearing aids in. Um, we need endurance because life doesn't go as planned. It does go as the king has planned. So we can be patient knowing that who is doing the planning. If the struggles of life, the pain of life, the hurts and trauma of life have turned you into an impatient person, <coughs> if you find your spiritual life fading, Paul is calling us again to repent of the ways our life does not reflect his. To repent of the ways our life is not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he calls us to join with the Apostle Paul in praying to be strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience. Fourth. Going back. We'll try again. So fourth is we please the king by being grateful. Picking up at the end of verse 11 with joy, giving thanks to the Father. And that's the fourth test. Is my life marked by gratitude. So on one hand, genuine joy in Christ and gratitude to the Father, they should be barometers of our spiritual health. They expose our relationship to the king in a really personal way. But on the other hand, ingratitude reveals a soul-rotting idolatry. Again, Paul speaking Romans chapter 1. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Tim Keller gives an example. He says, if you're indifferent to someone, then their happiness is at the expense of your happiness. But if you're in love with someone, their happiness is your happiness. Indifference to the king leads to this sort of heartless compliance to meet our obligations where obedience becomes nothing more than sheer duty. However, admiration of the king leads to generous actions aimed at shared joy. That's how it works. And nothing changes the nature of our obedience, whether it's duty or joy, more than a change in our relationship to the king and finding him glorious and beautiful. But if our hearts lack gratitude to the king, even in the midst of this calling to walk worthy of him, then our hearts have veered away from treasuring him. So Paul is praying, and we should be praying, that our hearts are redirected towards giving thanks to the Father with joy. So those are the four tests. Bearing fruit, knowing God, being resilient, and being grateful. And that all sounds fine. And it's all easier said than done. So how do we make these qualities that Paul is praying for realities in our life? And to answer that question, Paul points us to the king because he says we please the king by being 
qualified. We please the king by being qualified. Verse 12. Having laid out these four tests, Paul gives us the key through good God-centered theology that undergird all of these what could be seemingly impossible callings on our life. Because the king to whom we give thanks and from whom we find joy is the one, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has qualified you. And that's it. We're not living worthy lives in order to qualify for God's kingdom. We have already been declared worthy in Christ. He has already qualified us worthy for an inheritance of the saints in light. Now we're just called to live up to it. And that's how biblical ethics work. Who you are determines what you do. And in Christ, we're qualified for an inheritance of the saints in light. This is actually promised land language. But the emphasis here is on the brilliance of the light, not the geography. Because the Bible tells us that God is light, 1 John 1. He is the father of lights, James 1. The Son is the light of God's glory, Matthew 4, Luke 2, John 1, 3, 8, and 1 John 2. So a bunch of places. And therefore, to live in the presence of the King, to dwell in the presence of Christ, is to have an inheritance of the saints in light. And that means that in the end, Revelation 22.5 will come true. And that verse reads, And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the ultimate will of God. The will above all other that we would enjoy him forever in the brilliant radiance of God's presence. That's the inheritance of the saints in light. But to get it, we must be qualified. We must be uh, made worthy for him and made worthy by him. And that is the gracious gift of the king to us in the death and resurrection of Christ. He qualifies us, and therefore, last point, we please the king by being his. We please the king by being his. In contrast to this dazzling future and glory, God is calling us out of a life of darkness and sin. He calls us out of our laziness and ignorance and impatience and moodiness. I love to read Advent devotionals. I have a lot of them. But this year I've been struck hard by an Advent devotional being written online by my friend and PCA pastor Len Bailey. This Advent devotional is called A Darker Advent Than Desired. And that's because back in September, his beautiful 23-year-old daughter, Ilona Adeline Bailey, was killed in a car accident. And he writes, For Christians, these holidays, especially Thanksgiving and Christmas, are often tastes of heaven. When family is loving each other well and all are together, it just feels like we are being allowed a glimpse of heaven. The kingdom of God is breaking into this domain of darkness briefly. But when a seat is empty, or the relationships are strained at best, or broken at worst, when these feast days are as dark with sorrow as they once were as light with joy, they seem to scream at those in attendance, this is not heaven. 
we still await the final deliverance. Sin and death still have their sway. One thing about the Advent season, Len says, it requires darkness. Our candles are nothing more than ambiance and aesthetics in the middle of the day. Outdoor lights are unnoticeable at noon. The tree, the fireplace, the caroling, and the Christmas Eve candlelight service all need darkness for their full effect to be enjoyed. This is all true of our celebration of Advent. But the actual Advent, both the first appearing of the Christ child and the second appearing of the Christ king, do not require darkness as if light and dark are the yin and yang of one another, as some Eastern religions would have us believe. The Advent of Christ does not require darkness, but assumes darkness. Darkness is a given. So we live, our text says here in Colossians 1, We live in a domain of darkness. There are powers and rulers of darkness, Ephesians 6. We walk in darkness and dwell in darkness, Isaiah 9. Worse than that, we prefer darkness because our actions are dark, John 3. And without Christ, our sin is so dominating, we become darkness itself, Ephesians 5. So first of all, pray for Len and Amy Bailey this holiday season. But I'm pretty sure, let me say, it's not here. Uh, Those of you that know James and Katie Murphy, Len was their pastor before they came here. So they know him very well. I'm pretty sure Len would want you to know there's one more step to the process. Paul is filling in this backstory of deliverance And that comes to us in the last two verses, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If the king's ultimate will is for us to be in his presence, then he must deliver us. And that is what he's done. Deliverance and redemption are key terms from the Exodus. As think about the Exodus between walls of water push back to the side so there's a dry path laid out ahead for the children of God. The king has supernaturally transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness, and he is leading us through on dry ground. We're surrounded by walls of terrifying water, and he has transferred us uh, out of the kingdom of darkness and delivered us. You could say he has exodus-ed us which is not an actual word. And it says, into the kingdom of his beloved son. Here we've been redeemed in the blood of Christ. This backstory of deliverance shapes our lives because the only way that we can pattern our life and our behavior and our thoughts and actions and words according to the will of the king is to see what the king has done for us in the past and what the king intends to do for us in the future. And every other detail of the Christian life, for it to find its place in our lives, it has to be set into that eternal narrative. We are somewhere between Calvary and heaven. And to be delivered into this sovereign storyline of the king is an amazing grace. Our adoption into a royal family comes with a high calling. To be a child of the king, 1 Peter 2, we did this like back in October, 
is to belong to a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been delivered from darkness for a brilliant glory to come. And in between the past grace and the coming future grace, we walk as children of the king, as light in the darkness of the world. That sounds wonderful. But what does that look like for Len and Amy Bailey? He writes about that as well. Listen to what he says. John 1.5 tells us the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That word translated overcome has multiple meanings. It can mean to comprehend, to lay hold of, to grasp. And just like in English, the Greek word can use describing uh, grasping something intellectually. And he says, this is where I am. In the darkness of Alona's death, I'm left in a state of incomprehension. Her light, her joy, her faith, her love, these have been taken away, and I do not understand. I know that the light is shining into this darkness, but I am unable to grasp it. But there's another way of interpreting this word overcome, and that is to extinguish. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, no matter how dark, cannot overcome or extinguish that light. He says, this is where I long to be. How I would love to shout, shout into the face of the shadow of death. You may not have this household. You have no authority here. We are children of the light, and you cannot change that. God has delivered Alona from the domain of darkness and transferred her into the kingdom of his beloved son and us no less than her. So I will look for that light and long for that light. And even if it feels like a distant pinprick and a deep dark veil, I will wait. It is, after all, a season of waiting. It is Advent. Think about that. Pray for them and then pray for us. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to be resilient people, to be grateful people, to be people who have forgotten to focus our energies on knowing you and bearing fruit in every good work. And yet, you have already delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Grant that we may live as people who give thanks with joy and work in each of our hearts as we learn from the Apostle Paul this Advent, this season of waiting, to know without a doubt that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, your Son, Jesus, our King, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.